0: Hello all and warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you from a coronavirus-free spare room in North Wales, and still North Wales' leading one-person-and-his-cat true crime podcast that seeks out and recounts those often-unfamiliar, often-forgotten tales of dark deeds from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. It was hard to type that through my hazmat suit, I'm telling you. No, I'm just joshing, of course. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, thanking you very much for joining me here today and hoping that as you hear this you're all good. Maybe some of you are self-isolating still and if so, I hope that the cabin fever hasn't set in just yet. So this week I've raided the Patreon back catalogue once again as the knock-on effect of the current chaos takes hold I'm busy as ever between work and different things but I'm making the most and working on the multi-parter, which as of in this, will be heading out to you guys starting from the next episode. As I said in the previous episode, The War That Comes Home, which I thank you all for the feedback for, by the way, I'm trying to do business as usual here on The Enthusiast. It's times such as this, where I'm thankful to have a back catalogue of episodes to fall back upon. I'm thankful also to my returning Patreon supporters this week, and I've finished up this month's Supporters episode, which will be out shortly. And when I get chance in the upcoming weeks, I shall be giving you guys some extra bonus episodes also. Perhaps if I myself have to self-isolate, I may even get chance to do this long-awaited Ask Me Anything video for subscribers. Who knows, you get to see a very poorly me, eh? Although I am using a couple of Patreon episodes here as needs must, There is a new one released for subscribers each month and should you want to join these guys and get to hear some of the episodes that haven't been aired then it's very reasonable and so simple that the Commodores wrote a song about it. Just get yourself over to the Patreon site and look up the show there. Don't forget that podcast suffix though or you may struggle to find it or it's all done for you with a link in the episode show notes. Quicker than a Wetherspoons fills up with purple-nosed alcohol gnomes of a morning opening, you can be sitting back hearing bonus episodes, such as the Samaritan and the Salvationist, Retribution, or the Portsmouth-Casanova murder, to name just a few. Or, depending on your support tier of course, you could be waiting for some posts for me also as you listen. It's all explained on the show's Patreon page. So this week then, on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we're off back to the early 1990s and to the village of Hambleton in England's smallest county, Rutland. The case I've selected for this week deals with the savage double murder and is a remarkable tale of greed, oafishness and incredible forensic detection. It really is unbelievable. Plus, you get to meet one of the most unlikable characters we've ever come across here on the show to date. A real proper scumbag this one. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events involving elderly persons that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing. So as always here on the show folks, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for this week we look back at a case I've entitled, The Leftover List. Derek and Eileen Severs had called Hambleton, which is a small village located on the Hambleton Peninsula in the English county of Rutland, they'd called it their home since the early 1970s a very remote and insular village. In 1976, Hambleton was surrounded by water on three of its sides with the construction of man-made reservoir Rutland Water, which is by surface England's largest reservoir. It's today a haven for wildlife and it hosts the annual Bird Fair, which is reportedly the world's largest conservation event. And back in the early 1970s, Derek and Eileen got to take in the full creation of Rutland Water from its start to its very completion, as it was in full view from the sizeable grounds of this spacious £300,000 bungalow that they'd bought in Hambleton. By 1993, both Derek and Eileen had become well-known figures in the small community, and were well-liked and highly thought of. Both now in their late 60s, Derek had semi-retired from his role as a senior executive for the chemical company ICI and he took life at an easy pace enjoying his retirement. Eileen was the polar opposite though. A former dental nurse, although she too was retired as well, Eileen was more active than ever. She was a keen golfer and a member of North Luffenham Golf Club and she was also very much an active volunteer in the Citizens Advice Bureau Volunteered for age concern and the Rutland Volunteer Bureau. Eileen even worked voluntarily at the now closed category C Ashwell Prison in Burley, where she taught many of the inmates to play bridge. I can't play bridge myself, it just it seems absolute load of nonsense to me, so God only knows how long that would take to teach someone. It was this active and busy life revolving around her charity work, which sounds busier than when she was probably full-time employed, that had led to Eileen being awarded an MBE in 1989. Derek, meanwhile, rarely did anything more strenuous than lift up a pint glass in his retirement. He was fond of a lunchtime pint, and he was a regular and well-known figure in his local Hambleton's Finch's Arms pub, but on Sunday the 14th of November 1993, he'd uncharacteristically failed to turn up there, and he wasn't seen either on subsequent days following this. As days passed, co-volunteers and friends of Eileen noticed that she too had missed several appointments over the weekend. In fact, not being seen since an event at the Congregational Hall in the neighbouring village of Oakham on Friday, the 12th of November. She'd failed to deliver prizes around the village for a raffle that she'd organised on the Sunday, this instead being done by her son Roger. She'd missed a pre scheduled appointment to take a friend of hers to hospital on Monday, the 15th of November, and all attempts to reach her or Derek by telephone on these subsequent days had failed. They'd drawn a blank. The fact that a couple who were known for their regular habits and complete reliability were now failing in both of these meant that the couple's neighbours soon became concerned, especially when they learned that both of the Severs Seniors' vehicles were still at the bungalow, and by Thursday the 18th of November, they'd become alarmed enough to report them as missing to police. On the evening of Thursday the 18th of November then, police knocked on the door of the Sever's bungalow for it to be opened by 37-year-old Roger Severs, the only son of Derek and Eileen, who'd returned to live with his parents in April of that year after separating from his girlfriend. He willingly allowed police into the house and, relaxing by the fire, told detectives that his parents were away visiting friends down south. But when pressed, he couldn't supply police with an address or telephone contact details for where they were, claiming that they'd not left him with a number and he'd forgotten to ask them for contact details. He claimed he'd spoken to his parents two days previously when they'd rung him though, and was expecting them back on the Monday of the following week. Severs agreed that police could have a look around the property, where one of the first things that they were to notice was that the carpets were missing in both the bathroom and the kitchen, leaving just bare flooring. Now is it common to have a carpet in the kitchen, do you think, because... I asked my friend this and he didn't think it sounded common either. And I don't. It just doesn't sound right to me that really, but perhaps it's just me. Don't know. Has anybody listening got a carpet in the kitchen? When he was asked about why they were missing, Severus told police that they'd been water damaged due to his mother overfilling the bath and ruining the bathroom carpet. And his father, having spilled boiling chip fat from the chip pan and onto the kitchen mum, and both had been removed and thrown away. But there was something about Severs's manner though that police instantly thought he was hiding something. I mean he couldn't explain exactly where his folks were just that they were away at friends of theirs and his explanation for why his mother and father's cars were still at the house because they'd decided to take the train away just didn't seem realistic. Derek Severs was severely arthritic and he wouldn't have liked to have been away anywhere without his car and having to rely on public transport. So highly suspicious then, but with no grounds to arrest Severs, police left the property. After inquiries were made at railway stations to try and substantiate his account, including at London's King's Cross and Peterborough for any sightings of the couple drew a blank, police came to the conclusion that Derek and Eileen Severs had likely come to some harm, and most likely at the hands of their son, Roger. The sudden disappearance was too uncharacteristic for them, plus Roger couldn't explain exactly where they'd supposedly gone, both cars were still at the bungalow, and to police, there were obvious signs that something had happened in the kitchen and the bathroom of the bungalow, due to the missing carpets, a contrast to the otherwise tidy and orderly home. So a decision was now made to arrest Roger Severs, and police called again at the Severs bungalow the following day to do this, but Severs wasn't at home. As a bulletin went out to find him and his car, a senior crime team waited outside the Sever's bungalow for authorization to enter the property once the arrest had been effected. As they were waiting, looking around the grounds and vegetable patch of the bungalow, as you do when you're waiting somewhere, you have a bit of a nosy round, don't you? Their attention was drawn to a differential pattern of frosting between a large section of the soil in the vegetable patch and the remainder of it. It had been severely cold that November, but the frost was much thinner in a large section of this patch as though the earth there had recently been disturbed small but unmistakable flecks of blood were also noticed in a spray pattern on the garage door and amongst the gravel of the drive meanwhile attempts to find severs came to fruition when police contacted his former partner jane galliford who told them that Severs had called around to see her earlier on that day to take their toddler's son out to a market in the nearby town of Stamford. Officers went straight here and located Severs' car in the car park and after waiting for him to return to the vehicle, arrested him on suspicion of the murders of his parents. Once he'd been arrested, the waiting senior crime officers were then given authority to enter the Severs bungalow, effecting entry through a window in the bathroom that was ajar. Although the house was relatively tidy at a glance, the missing bathroom carpet gave indication that something had indeed gone on in there, and a detailed examination of the room was performed. Although to the naked eye it was clean, a substantial quantity of blood flecks and smears were found in those hard-to-reach places to clean up, under the detailed eye of the forensic expert, and it indeed suggested that some violence had taken place in there. Also found in the bungalow were several fibres of a yellowish-green colour on the hall carpet and a large patch of what investigators thought to be bleach or some other type of industrial cleaning agent staining on the otherwise clean floor of the garage. But the most remarkable find was found in the kitchen. A folded piece of paper containing a handwritten, numbered 14-point list and itinerary was discovered on the kitchen unit, which read as follows. 1. Wheelbarrow. Clean. 2. Rubbish. 3. Mum's car. Clean. 4. Dad's car. Clean. 5. Clean bathroom. 6. Check shed. 7. Pictures. 8. Fire. Check it out. 9. Deliver other prize. 10. Check hotels. 11. Ashes. 12. Cut down shrubs. Dads. 13. Little garage. 14. Dump. Now what would that read like to you? It could be an ordinary list of chores that you gotta do really that, couldn't it? But with ever increasing signs that something sinister had happened to Derek and Eileen, put together with the blood that had been found in the bathroom that somebody had obviously tried to clean up, it read to police as more of a checklist for someone trying to cover up his tracks to get away with murder. Over the next 48 hours, Roger Severs was interviewed a total of 11 different times by detectives, and each time he gave a slightly different account than the last one. His parents had gone away to stay with friends, then they'd gone away with friends, they didn't want to take either car, then one of the cars was knackered, that kind of thing. Although he maintained throughout each interview that they were fine, that he'd spoken to them and he expected them back on that coming Monday. He couldn't explain the presence of blood in the bathroom and indeed refuted that it was even blood and when he was pressed about the list that had been found in the kitchen, he said that it was just that, it was a list of chores that he had to do. However, interviewing detectives were so convinced that he was spinning them a yarn here, taking into account with the forensic evidence that had been found, that even without the bodies of Derek and Eileen Severs, it was believed that Roger Severs had murdered his parents and disposed of them somewhere. Charges of double murder on a day between the 12th and the 19th of November were brought against him and he was remanded in custody. With Severs in custody charged with double murder the search for the bodies of Derek and Eileen Severs now began. The garden, paddock and vegetable patch of their bungalow was dug up and searched thoroughly but nothing was found and teams of police and civilian volunteers searched the area spreading outwards from the Hambleton Peninsula on foot for any signs of a grave but again to no avail. The neighbouring water authority, Anglian Water, offered police special sonar equipment that was capable of detecting underwater objects as small as 30 inches in diameter, and that was borrowed in order to search nearby Rutland water, which was no mean feat because it's massive. Well, to give you an idea of the scale of what we're talking about here, it has a 24-mile perimeter. That's pretty big, is it? You wouldn't want to drink it, would you? Police divers were brought in to search here though and as they did a helicopter was used to scour the lake's surface, its shores and the surrounding areas including a nearby landfill site near North Luffenham. Nothing was found. Then police decided to use a different quite remarkable tack. When the forensic examination of the Sever's bungalow was carried out this had also extended to both of the Sever's vehicles and in Derek Severs's Rover, traces of blood were found in the boot and the back seat, along with the familiar yellowish-green fibres that had also been found on the hall carpet. The wheels and wheel arches of the vehicle were also thick with mud, and smears of mud were found inside the vehicle. Now Derek Severs was fastidious about keeping his car clean, and testament to which were the three car cleaning tokens that were found in the glove compartment, whereas this clean-up had only been half-heartedly done. Police therefore believed that Roger Severs had transported the bodies of his parents to wherever he buried them using the rover, although as we've said, attempts to find a grave site had drawn a blank so far. Could forensics help pinpoint this? The lead senior crime officer, Orlando Elmhurst, fantastic name or what eh, had the idea that the mud on the vehicle could possibly be tested for its composition, which when analysed may lead police to be able to pinpoint a specific area where the vehicle had recently been, and maybe lead them to a grave. Examinations suggested that the mud in the inner wheel arches had accumulated recently and over a short period of time from an off-road location. Samples were subsequently taken from each of the wheel arches and the footwells of the car and were sent to soil expert Dr Tony Brown, a lecturer from nearby Leicester University. Dr Brown's analysis was able to reveal that the mud contained a combination of quartz, calcite, ironstone, chert and coated roadstone, a composition which suggested it had originated from an unmade up road in the East Leicestershire area. The organic matter in the samples also showed two dozen varieties of plant life, including grasses and moss, as well as a combination of various trees. A summary of his findings from the official report to police read as follows. The soil originates from a road verge or parking place by water used by fishermen in or adjacent to woodland with a significant proportion of oak, horse chestnut, ash and lime the wood edge also bordering arable fields or pastures, and located on or adjacent to soil derived from Lincolnshire limestone. Boom, textbook answer or what eh? Based on this remarkable work, naturalists were able to take these criteria and eventually narrow down the origins of the mud to having come from one of just two areas of woodland, one on and the other adjacent to the Hambleton Peninsula. It was decided then to concentrate the search for the Severs bodies here, and teams moved into the areas. Working off the theory that the vehicle had had to get off road somewhere, a 50 metre search parameter was set either side of any access tracks in the likely areas and set to this for a reason. Derek Severs was a large man. He was 6 feet 4 inches in height and he weighed 20 stones, and it was believed that such a large man, an unfortunate choice of words but a dead weight as well it was believed that such a large man could not physically be carried more than 50 meters without exhausting whoever was moving him on the 1st of December 1993 police searching Armley Woods a small wood adjacent to the Hambleton Peninsula and one of the locations specified by naturalists discovered a large mound covered with broken tree branches in a thicket about 25 metres away from an access dirt track. When the mound was carefully excavated, police discovered a pair of feet wrapped in a yellow blanket sticking out of the mound. Sadly, Derek and Eileen Severs had now been found. As the bodies were being excavated, however, it was noticed that the earth and soil on top of the grave was of a different type to that found in the wood. It contained shingle and pieces of slate, pieces of roof tile, and even a potato was discovered in it. It had obviously been brought from elsewhere to cover the bodies further, and this led police to recall the different frost patchings in the Sever's vegetable patch, had the soil been taken from there. Consultant pathologist Dr Clive Bausch inspected the bodies at the scene in Armley Woods and noticed as the makeshift grave was excavated that a blanket had been tied around Derrick and fastened with string and two belts, whereas Eileen had a yellow blanket wrapped around her and a jumper pulled over her head. At the later post-mortem, he determined the cause of death in both cases to be severe head injuries that had been inflicted with a rounded blunt instrument thought to be a hammer or a mallet type. He stated that considerable force had been used to shatter the couple's skulls, but that chillingly, Eileen Severs had not died immediately. Gravely wounded, she'd clung to life for possibly up to 30 minutes before succumbing to her injuries. Neither victim had been able to defend themselves, and the first blows to each, although inflicted from differing angles, the first blows may have been inflicted from behind. Detective Sergeant Tom Robertson visited Roger Severs on remand in prison to inform him that his parents' bodies had been discovered, but he was surprised at Severs' lack of a reaction to the news. He later recalled that Severs didn't seem to respond to this in any way or be interested, saying, he just took the information on board and walked away and not interested about anything unless it was about himself or benefited himself, kind of summed up Roger Severs. He was an only child who from an early age soon got used to having his own way. From day one, his parents doted on him and gave him the best things that money could buy. The Severs family able to have the good things in life because of Derek's attractive salary as a senior ICI executive, and both parents spoiled their only child rotten. Whatever Roger wanted, he usually got. On the rare occasions that his parents held out against his ever-increasing demands, Roger soon learned the art of manipulation and able to play one parent off against the other. And whilst this often worked, when it didn't, Roger would erupt in a furious rage and anger, having a right strop and being a spoilt brat who basically needed a good hard kick up the arse. As he got older, his parents hoped that he'd grow out of these tantrums and rages and into the son that every parent wants, one that they could be proud of, but nothing at all was to change. Although he went to a fine private school and he was given every kind of encouragement in his studies, he was basically bone idle. Throughout his school career, report after report said that although he was an able and intelligent pupil, he was lazy and displayed a lack of commitment and effort and following row after row about this at home, his parents hoped he'd eventually man up, shape up and get his head down to some serious study. They were to be disappointed once more though, when he failed miserably in all of exams through lack of effort. Leaving school with no qualifications, but believing himself to have a nose for business, Severs decided to seek an easy fortune with a series of get-rich-quick schemes. But although he was full of big ideas, he didn't quite have the nous or indeed the hard work ethic to make any of them a success. Time and again he planned to go into all sorts of different types of business ventures that he believed would break through with little effort and make him easy money. And time and again they all failed due to Roger not putting the required effort in and understanding that hard work and dedication breeds success. Although he and his father clashed frequently because he was bone idle, they were still father and son and Derek was always keen to help his son out if he could. So Roger, having long cottoned on to this, always knew that he could tap his father up for the latest business plan he'd come up with that needed bankrolling. And each and every time, the money that was put forward by his well-meaning father was just frittered away. By the 1980s, Roger Severs was leeching not just off his parents, but whoever he could find. The one talent he'd learned at an early age that he was accomplished at, the ability to charm and manipulate people, at least people who didn't know him well enough, he put to good use. He could sell coal to Newcastle, such was this guy a good talker. And he used this to sweet talk and seduce women. Although, if you look at pictures of him, I personally can't see the appeal there. I think he looks like one of triplets and he's eaten the other two, you know. Big fat jabber. But love is blind, isn't it, I suppose. And a succession of girlfriends gave him shelter and money, all falling for the Del Boy-esque tales of his big plans for the future and the next big venture that never quite came. He was also known to tell ever-increasing tall tales and boast. And he'd often tell people he'd just met that he was a doctor or he would try and regale whoever would listen to him with stories of how he'd played rugby for England and how he'd saved people from the 1993 Harrods bombing, as well as rescuing several people from the 1989 Kegworth Air disaster. It was all a complete work of fiction, load of old nonsense. To listen to him, he'd been to Old Zealand, you know the type I mean. We've talked about him many times on the show. But the darker side to such a delightful, charming-sounding individual was never too far away. This quest for getting rich quickly had left him with a criminal record, and twice in the 1980s he was to appear in court on charges of fraud and deception. He was also a heavy drinker, preferring whiskey, and when he'd been drinking, he was unpredictable and violent. In fact, it was violence that ended several of the relationships that he entered into after he beat up his partners after drinking sessions. Then, inevitably thrown out or with his support stopped, he'd head back home to his parents with his tail between his legs and lick his wounds for a bit before he'd pull himself together, charm somebody else, and the whole sorry cycle would begin anew. Throughout all of this, he worked less than a broken clock There were a couple of half-hearted attempts at a sales career, a bit of bar work and some casual labouring jobs such as crop spraying or assisting in an ironmongers. But more often than not, the laziness in Severs would be the undoing and he was let go, content to just sponge off people. And throughout all of this, he'd once and again go back to his parents. There may have been some rows and recriminations about his laziness and his continued fecklessness, granted but he'd usually get support and comfort from his parents and he was always able to wheedle his way back into favour with them then in 1990 he was scouring through the lonely hearts column of the local newspaper when his eye was drawn to an advert that had been placed by a divorcee named jane galliford a mother of three who ran her own hotel nearby where she also lived Getting in touch with Jane, she agreed to go on a date with Severs, who impressed her with the tale that he was a gynaecologist enjoying a sabbatical from the profession, and soon charmed Jane enough for them to begin a relationship. By the time Jane discovered Severs' deception some months later, by that time she was already head over heels in love with him, and was pregnant with his child. He moved out of his parents' home and into the hotel with Jane and her children, but his newfound responsibilities as a father and partner didn't change Sever's one bit. He continued leeching and freeloading off Jane, and like a leopard can't change its spots, so too did he start knocking her about. Time and again she forgave him when he promised it was to be the last time and he'd never do it again, but it wasn't, and by April 1993, enough was enough and she threw him out, this time ostensibly for good. Once again then he returned to his old room in his parents house where he was to seven months later brutally murder both and bury them in a nearby wood. And we shall return to the episode shortly following a short word from this week's kind sponsor of the show that I'm pleased to say once again is the new book from author Kathy Reich's A Conspiracy of Bones. If detective fiction is your thing and like me you enjoy a book series featuring a central character then look no further than the latest book from number one New York Times best-selling crime author Kathy Reichs, A Conspiracy of Bones, which is available now from Simon & Schuster Publishers in hardback, ebook, and what I personally love myself, audiobook form. A Conspiracy of Bones is the latest offering in Kathy's Temperance Brennan series of books, which fans have enjoyed for many years and which were the basis of the long-running US TV serial drama Bones that if you were a fan of when it was on, I'm sure that you'd have already known. This time around, straight to the point forensic anthropologist Temperance is slap bang in the middle of a gruesome case involving a body that's missing its hands and also its face. But it's just there that the plot thickens, like what is the connection to the case of a child that's been missing for 10 years? And why did the dead man have Temperance's cell phone number on him before he died? There's a reason that the Temperance Brennan series has kept Cathy's fans hooked for years, and her latest offering is just the latest chapter in that. With a shocking few twists, you'll find with a conspiracy of bones that everybody has some secrets. And bit by bit, Temperance uncovers a picture that just gets more twisted and much darker. Head over to Amazon or all good supermarkets and high street bookstores to grab your own copy of A Conspiracy of Bones, which is available now from Simon & Schuster Publishing. We shall now continue with the episode. The trial of Roger Severs began before Mr Justice Laws on the 21st of November 1994 at Nottingham Crown Court, where he pleaded not guilty to murder, Were admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Severs claimed that he was mentally ill at the time of the killings, blaming alcohol, depression, the moon, the Conservative Party, everything. But this plea was rejected by the prosecution, however, and he faced a full trial. Several witnesses were called to give evidence for the prosecution throughout the proceedings, and prosecuting counsel Mr John Goldring, QC, Painted a picture to the cause of how Derek and Eileen Severs were the epitome of respectability, two decent, hard working people who enjoyed their retirement in the idyllic setting of Rutland Water, having earned it through the many years that they'd both put into working hard for it. Roger Severs was a contrast to this, it was claimed though. He'd gone from relationship to relationship that had failed and had no proper job, being perennially short of money and a habitual liar. Frequently asking his parents to bail him out of whichever latest financial mess that he'd gotten himself into. The year before, his parents had threatened not to help him any further financially when he'd returned home once again to them following the breakup of his latest relationship with Jane Galliford, with whom he had this two year old son, Tom. Having Roger living at the bungalow didn't work though, as father and son were often to have words, and by November 1993, the once happy home was now in a sorry state. The latest tension had begun some weeks previously when Severs had asked his now retired father for the cash required for he and Jane to buy a country pub together, which he hoped brought with it the chance of repairing their relationship. Severs believing that the offer of a joint business venture may persuade Jane to give him another chance. As usual, he claimed to have all of the answers with a combination of jane's knowledge of the license trade and his own supposed business acumen this was a venture that could not fail but his father had heard all of this before and where in the past he'd caved into his son's demands this time he refused point blank severs like the child that had never grown up to stand on his own two feet and had remained a spoiled brat had raged and sulked for days over this what he perceived to be a snub and he frequently told anybody who would listen that his mother and father preferred to help other people out rather than their own son to make matters worse roger then discovered that derrick had loaned a publican friend of his alan freeman i don't think it was fluff it might be and i don't know the former landlord of the finch's arms in hambleton £10,000 to set up business at another pub, the No Arms, in Langham. It was the same sum that Severs had asked his father for himself, and when Freeman was called to give evidence at Severs' trial to confirm this, he told the court that Roger Severs had been very, very angry about this, and had warned that there was to be big trouble over the loan. Imagine what something like that must have done to such a parasite, eh? On the morning of Saturday, 13th of November 1993, there was another blazing row at the Severs bungalow, and Eileen Severs told her feckless son that the never ending handouts from her and Derek had come to an end. That was absolutely it when he'd pressed her once again for money. To emphasise this and to make sure that he understood, she told Roger he would not be inheriting a fortune from them to be frittered away upon their deaths either. They were planning to leave everything that they had to their only grandchild Tom who they doted upon when they were allowed to see him. Furious, Roger stormed out of the house and headed off to a pub in the neighbouring village of Oakham where he spent the lunchtime session there downing one whisky after another brooding upon how much he hated his parents. That day it consumed him, he couldn't think of anything else at all. Eventually, heading back to the bungalow, he let himself in and found his 68-year-old mother preparing the family meal of steak for that evening. His father was out having an afternoon drink at the village local pub, but within minutes, Severs and his mother were rowing once again, exactly from where they'd left off earlier that day. Heading to the bathroom to take herself out of the way of her angry son and to try and diffuse the situation... Eileen turned both of the bath taps on to have a calming relaxing bath and turned to see Roger lunging at her. Before she must have been able to fully comprehend what was happening, Severs struck his mother a blow squarely in the forehead with all of the pent-up rage that he had, his weapon of choice being a wooden steak mallet that he'd grabbed from the kitchen work surface. As she fell to the floor, he struck her another six times, leaving the bathroom awash with blood. So violent were the blows that he inflicted upon Eileen that he shattered her skull like an eggshell. There were later found no signs that she'd tried to defend herself at all, probably not having chance to and It was estimated that it took Eileen up to thirty minutes to die and Severs did nothing to help her as her life was ebbing away instead leaving his mother lying on the bathroom floor. He waited for the real object of his rage, his father, to return home. Shortly afterwards, Derek Severs arrived home in his Rover. Because he was 69 years old and he suffered from chronic arthritis, he couldn't walk far and he so often drove down to his local for his afternoon pint. But the arthritis meant that it would take him considerable time to get in and out of the vehicle and today was no exception. Before he was halfway out of the vehicle, however, he was attacked by his son Roger, who sprang at him from the side of the garage and struck him with the same weapon he'd shortly before killed his mother with. As his father fell to the ground, instantly unconscious, Severs struck him another nine times with all of his might, causing his father catastrophic head injuries. And now Severs thought oh bollocks but not out of horror or remorse for what he'd done more that now he had to cover his tracks and conceal his crime dragging his father's body into the garage he shut the door went back into the house and grabbed a notebook and began to write a list of everything he thought he must do if he was going to get away with murder the 14 entry numbered list that was later found in the kitchen but initially it was to remove their bodies, which was no easy task. Whilst his mother was a small woman and it was relatively easy to wrap her corpse in a yellow blanket, place a jersey around her shattered head, drag her through the house and garage and place her into the boot of the rover, his father was a different proposition altogether. Getting more blankets from the airing cupboard, he secured his father's corpse inside them with string and two belts, and somehow manhandled his large frame onto the back seat of the rover. With darkness approaching and his mind working overtime, Severs packed the car with a torch, a garden fork and a spade, then got in and drove away. Eventually, he pulled off the road nearby to the lonely site in Armley Woods, about five miles from the bungalow, got out of the car and set to work a short distance off the track. It was a big job excavating a grave large enough to hide both bodies, and it took Severs the remainder of the night, especially because he made several return journeys to excavate further soil from the vegetable patch next to the Severs bungalow to further hide the makeshift grave, obviously thinking that a newly dug hole and a newly appeared mound of earth may look suspicious. Douglas Clements, a neighbour of the Severs family giving evidence at his trial, told the court that on that Monday night he'd heard a car going to and from the Severs bungalow several times, on one occasion when he heard it looking at the clock in his bedroom and noticing that it was 3am. The prosecution alleged that what Douglas had heard was in fact Roger Severs making a number of trips from the bungalow to dump soil that he'd removed from the vegetable patch there to dump on top of his parents shallow grave in Armley Woods. After a number of these journeys, when he was satisfied that his macabre task was complete, his parents lay under two and a half tons of soil, which Severs had further covered with leaves and fallen tree branches to make appear more natural. Then it was time to clean up the murder scene at the bungalow to cover his tracks further, but between the task he'd just performed and doing this, he had a couple of other vital things to do first. Eileen Severs, as we've said, was very active in village life and charity fundraising and Severs knew that his mother had earlier that week organised a charity raffle and that Sunday 14th of November she was due to deliver the prizes from this to their winners around the village. Using a car, Severs drove around Hambleton delivering these prizes, telling anybody who asked that his parents had decided to go off on the spur of the moment to visit friends down in the south somewhere, he claimed. He also that day made a series of telephone calls to Jane Galliford, asking if she'd meet him the following evening to discuss having another go at their relationship, a real fresh start for them. She was later to tell police that he seemed buoyant and upbeat on the phone, telling her that all his plans were coming to fruition and an idea for a new business venture that he'd had would spell the end of his money troubles. When she inquired after his parents whom Jane maintained a good relationship with as they were after all her son's paternal grandparents, Severs told her that they'd gone away on the spur of the moment. Now this surprised Jane as she knew that neither Derek or Eileen were a couple who just upped and did things spontaneously and she'd also arranged a shopping trip with Eileen on the Tuesday of that week but having no serious misgivings about Eileen or Derek being away unexpectedly and expecting them to be back by then, she agreed to meet Severs for dinner that Tuesday evening. Severs, meanwhile, had cleaned up the bathroom as best he could by this time and ripped up the carpet in there, which he burned on a bonfire, and had then enlisted the unwitting assistance of his parents' gardener, David Earp, and Jane Galliford's 13-year-old son, Michael, to further help him cover up his awful crime. David Earp gave evidence to the court that Severs had collected him from his Oakham home on the afternoon of Monday the 15th of November in his mother's Volkswagen Golf, the tyres and wheel trims of which were filthy. He drove him to the bungalow at Hambleton, telling him that his parents were away for a few days, even though David noticed that Mr Severs' Rover was parked in the double garage. The gardener then said he saw Severs cleaning a patch of the garage floor with Jay's fluid, which corresponded with the stain into the garage floor that senior crime officers had discovered, and that later he witnessed him placing a portion of kitchen carpet and some grass cuttings into a black bin liner, which they took to a rubbish tip at nearby Cottersmoor. Michael Galliford, meanwhile, told the court that five days after the killings, he'd helped Severs wash and clean out both of his parents' cars with a vacuum cleaner, with the debris being placed into refuse sacks and taken to a nearby landfill site. Sounds like my car, that does landfill. Michael also told on the same day how he'd inadvertently helped to burn on a bonfire items that Severs had expressed to him that he wanted destroyed, Including clothing and further portions of carpet, when Michael had asked him why they were burning derrick Severs's property, Roger Severs had told him, "Grandad won't need them any more." Jane Galliford was next to give evidence. She told the court how she and Roger had met, lived together for a period, and had had a son, but by April nineteen ninety-three, she'd had enough of his lies, his heavy drinking, and his heavy-handedness towards her which would be one way to describe it, another would be to say he was a bullying coward, and yet another would be to say that he was a domestic abuser. It was then that she'd thrown him out for good, finally having enough of it. Mrs Galliford told the court that she was totally dominated by Roger Severs, who she claimed needed to feel powerful at all times, and when she'd thrown him out, he tried several pathetic attempts to wheedle his way back into her affections. She said that on the day of the murder she'd had a row with him over the telephone but by the following Monday 15th of November had received a bouquet of roses from him declaring his undying love for her. Eventually she told how she was persuaded to have dinner with him the following evening where he had reiterated his story that his parents had simply gone away at short notice when Jane had expressed concern about Eileen missing their shopping trip earlier that day but that before they'd gone he'd sorted out the long-standing difficulties with them that he'd had. She was surprised when he then discussed the couple marrying and buying and running a pub together, and was even more surprised when he paid for their meal from a large wad of banknotes from what she was used to seeing the perpetually skint Roger having. But it was only shortly after this, however, that other villagers in Hambleton were beginning to suspect that something had happened to Derek and Eileen. It was most unlike either to be so absent from the usual routines and the bad blood that had existed between Roger Severs and his mother and father was an open secret in the small community. The fatal flaw was that Severs had not taken into account just how popular or well known his mother was and when he told different stories to different people than the one he told the recipients of the raffle prizes about where his folks were this time claiming to some people that his father had had a minor stroke and the couple had gone away for him to recuperate, suspicions began to turn into serious concerns. This led to police being called and the onset of the tale that you've heard here today. When Severs himself took the stand at his trial, he admitted killing his parents but claimed that it was a case of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility rather than premeditated murder. He said he'd been using a steak mallet whilst preparing meat for tea and holding it in his hand he'd followed his mother into the bathroom where she'd made some derogatory comments to him concerning his failed relationship. Seeing red he then struck his mother over the head a number of times with the mallet. Roger then claimed that he'd run outside followed by his father who he claimed had been at home but in another part of the bungalow and not getting out of the car as it later transpired. He turned and belted his father with a mallet once, then twice, then he'd lost count. Severs claimed. I have hardly any recollection of what happened. It was a cold night and the cold seemed to start slowly bringing my senses round a bit. I recall that I had a whiskey bottle and I drank a substantial quantity. I didn't realise what I'd hit my father with or how many times. I sat by the greenhouse for some time. The lights of the bungalow were on and I thought about what had happened and went inside. I just could not believe the events, and at some stage I passed out. Severs went on to tell the court that he'd been discussing a possible reconciliation with Jane Galliford, which he'd spoken about with his mother, but it was a conversation that got nowhere. When his father had returned from the Finch's arms that afternoon, he too had poured scorn on this idea, making what Severs claimed were critical remarks about Jane. His comments were not very pleasant about Jane or myself, he added. But under a damning cross-examination from the prosecution, Severs agreed that over time he'd been a confidence trickster and an accomplished liar over several years, even going so far as to admit that his mother had described him as being a pathological liar. He also admitted that prior to his parents bodies being discovered he'd lied considerably to police throughout maintaining the story that he was attempting to sell that his parents were still alive. He pathetically explained that he'd hoped by doing this that he'd gained some time that he could spend with his son but he'd been arrested earlier than he had anticipated being which I think is absolute bollocks. Severs then told the court that in the days leading up to the double murder, he'd been in a confused, emotional and tearful state because his plans to reconcile with Jane, who he claimed was the love of his life, were not progressing and he'd been drinking heavily as a result. He had just snapped following comments made by his mother, he claimed. But the prosecution suggested that he was still lying constantly, however, even up to that point in court pointing out the story about him preparing steak for tea with a mallet and that's why he'd had it in his hand was a lie as Severs had already claimed to police that he and his parents were having lamb chops for tea that day. Severs was forced to agree that he had no job, no money and that he was dependent on a loan from his father to start this perceived new life with Jane and her children. Everything depended on him obtaining the necessary capital for them to start a new business venture together from the bank of mum and dad, and this was finally not forthcoming. He also admitted that following the death of his parents, but before he'd removed their bodies from the scene and taken them to their lonely grave in Armley Woods, he'd searched the bungalow from top to bottom to see if they'd left a will, because he wanted to see who would benefit. You can clearly see where the mindset is here, can't you? A psychiatrist called by the defence told the court that Severs was clinically depressed at the time of the murders, and that therefore his responsibility was substantially affected as a result. But Dr Peter Wood, a consultant psychiatrist called by the prosecution, disputed this however, saying that in his opinion there was no evidence whatsoever that Severs was suffering from depression. Further, he claimed that Severs had a basic makeup that made him different from the ordinary man in the street. He told the court, He is a Walter Mitty type of character. The evidence I've seen and heard suggests he is a callous, detached individual who lies and cheats and can be aggressive. He is unreliable, untrustworthy, boastful, and grandois, claiming attributes that he does not have. Following the events, there was clearly a high level of activity in a complicated and organised way to cover up what had happened, extending beyond the practical thing of disposing of the parents' bodies. I don't think he'd be getting a job reference from him at any time soon, would he? On the 12th of December 1994, the jury of six men and six women deliberated for less than two hours to deliver a unanimous verdict finding roger severs guilty of the brutal murders of his parents stood before mr justice laws severs was impassive as the judge told him there is only one sentence and that is life imprisonment severs being the dickhead that he undoubtedly was or is if he's still alive for he'll be in his mid-sixties by now was in no way as clever as he thought he was Despite what he considered to be a thorough clean-up operation, forensic experts were able to find traces of blood in the rover car and extensively in the bathroom and over the garage door and gravel of the driveway. In the remains of the bonfire ash, carpet fibres were found that matched fibres found in the bathroom of the house which undermined his lie that the bathroom carpet had been thrown away because he had in reality burnt it. Even the trousers that he'd been wearing on the day that he'd killed and disposed of his parents were a forensic goldmine, because microscopic examination revealed attaching to them matching fibres, identical in every aspect to fibres found on the blanket that he'd wrapped his mother's corpse in, the same fibres found on the hall carpet, and also in the boot of his father's rover. But to me, personally... The prime example of what a twat we are talking about here, the one crucial thing that Severs had overlooked, found amongst belongings of Severs when police searched his parents' bungalow, was the 14-point shopping list that he'd written to himself as a reminder as to the list of tasks he needed to clean up and cover his tracks following the murder. Although he'd had the foresight to try and think ahead and list things like the cleaning of both his mother and father's cars, destroying the carpet, even delivering the raffle prize that his mother was due to to avoid suspicion and comment, all steps that he'd thought of to cover up his crime and he'd forgotten to destroy the list. Absolute dickhead and that's why you're deservedly doing life. As you could probably tell from this episode, I found this individual to be an absolutely despicable parasite. I can't stand people who sponge off others for no reason that they can't be asked to earn for themselves and I've made no secret in previous episodes of both Patreon and the regular show just what I think concerning domestic violence either. Once is too many times and there is never ever an excuse for it. Not being pissed, not being wound up, there's never an excuse. Even looking at the widely published image of Sever's, He's got that type of smug look that makes you just want to just go up to him and proper lamp in one. Do you know what I mean? The crime has always stood out for me due to the remarkable forensic botany in the case. I mean, I always proper marvel at some of the intricate ways that these people are caught, and by narrowing down mud to specific locations, well, I buy anyone who can do that a pint. It's proper hats off there in it? But it's also a crime that stands out as a particularly brutal and calculated one. And for somebody to have such little consideration, compassion or remorse whatsoever, but to instead have such a massive sense of entitlement and play the victim, enraged because his parents would no longer cater to his every whim and fund him, well there's no place on earth for someone of that nature I don't think. It's now approaching 25 years since Severs was sentenced to life imprisonment and he may have since been released from custody in that time or his categorisation significantly downgraded should he still be serving, as we said should he still even be alive for that matter. But will he have changed in nature though? And that's where I think this is really doubtful. If you go through life living off other people and then go to a prison sentence where you can still live off others, the taxpayer and everything is done for you, then I can't really see how that would change anyone. What do you guys think? So what are your thoughts on the episode here today then, and the callous actions of Roger Severs? Murdering your own mother and father out of rage because they stood up to a sense of entitlement and told him to stand on his own two feet. Well it's undoubtedly evil isn't it, and Severs was deservedly locked away behind bars For such an evil crime a real tragic crime as well that was ultimately for nothing absolutely nothing to be gained from the death of two people whatsoever i'd love as ever to hear your thoughts concerning sever's and his monstrous crimes i hope that my own views are pretty clear from the episode and should you wish to share yours please feel more than welcome to in the thread that's up now in the true crime enthusiast podcast facebook group or as ever through any of the show's social media. If you're loaded and bored, you can even hire a plane to fly over Wrexham and skywrite me your thoughts, should you wish. I'm always happy to hear from you guys in whatever form. Just a reminder that Patreon bonus episode number 27 will be out very shortly, and I shall be back as ever with a new episode next week. So I'll wrap up here now and push off to get on with that. I thank you very much for joining me for the episode today which I hope you found interesting and informative. And before I leave you, I'm once again hoping that all you guys listening are good and well. Keep washing those hands, folks. Grit your teeth and we'll all get through this. Try not to worry too much. I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, saying take care and be safe and I shall speak to you very soon. Goodbye for now.